Thanks, Joe. That's Joe Apt, who's a student at the Masters University. Thanks for leading us this morning. I told him in the early service, I was just like connecting with him through that song. You know, it was just such a beautiful reminder. This is our Father's world. The, the words were there for you in the bulletin, if you know that song, and just appreciated him leading us in that this morning. So were you connecting with him? Yeah, that was, that was awesome. So hey, that's the work of the Spirit through instruments and through the words that we know are the song. You believe that? All right, good. You guys kind of seem a little, little bit asleep this morning. So I'm going to make sure the second service is still with us here today. So it's kind of funny. We've flipped how we used to do things here. It used to be that the first service was light and the second service was packed. And now here at our church, it seems like the opposite is happening. The first service is like packed out. This service seems a little light. So you're always kind of trying to figure out what's going on. But I'm glad you're here. You glad you're here? All right, good deal. Hey, if you got a Bible, open up to the book of Ma- uh, John, the book of John, chapter 11. We're continuing in our verse-by-verse study through this incredible gospel, and we're in chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. We started this last week, and the title for the sermon is A Love Greater Than Death. A Love Greater Than Death. This is a part two, so we'll kind of get a running start from last week and then dive in to what we have in store for us this week as well. So let's listen to what the Apostle John writes here in John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. (coughs) Excuse me. The disciples said to him, (coughs) Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? (coughs) If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Why don't we pray together? Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to read this passage again. I pray that you would give us insight into your word today, that you would allow us to learn all that you want us to learn today, that we would see the love of Christ so clearly that we would know that you are in control and that you always do what's best. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On a fall morning in October of 2005, Dory Powledge waited for her husband's usual phone call once he dropped their four youngest children off at school. When that call didn't come, 
Dory called the children's school only to learn that a tragic automobile accident had claimed the lives of all five of her loved ones who left their home in the car that morning. In an instant, her husband Adam, age 39, Jacob, her son, age 12, Blake, age 10, Rachel, age 7, and Isaac, age 6, were all killed, and she felt all alone. Thoughts of loss and tragedy swirled through Dory's head. She would never see her husband and her four children alive on this earth again. But Dory didn't stay down. Her pain has been transformed into a message of hope that she brings to others who have also suffered loss through local and national speaking engagements and through the pages of her book, A Love Greater Than Death, Dory shares her goal and her ministry, which was born out of this tragedy. She now lives to help others understand that they can be free and be healed by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Regardless of whatever difficult, seemingly hopeless situations we all face in this world, happy endings are possible, writes Dory. She goes on to say, quote, We've all had things break our hearts. When it's your life, there's no comparing, and the hurt and loss you feel are as important as anyone else's. The message of a greater uh, love, uh, a love greater than death, is about being an overcomer. Dory rewinds that particular day and the months following it when she learned that her life would never be the same. She talks about the many emotions she felt when she realized her dreams of a marriage and family were shattered. And she has grown to be able to share how her faith in God and truth of his promises sustained and enriched her despite that tremendous loss. Well, today, as we're going to continue our time in John 11, we're going to read about Lazarus's death. And no one can bring sense to it all except Jesus and in the presence of death, the wisest and the richest and the most mighty among men have to confess their utter helplessness. Something humbling about dying. And this is the most appropriate background for Jesus to show himself, as we know he will, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And facing your own death or the death of a loved one can be overwhelming, to say the least. But, J.C. Ryle writes, quote, We must never forget that the best and ablest helper we have is in heaven at God's right hand. Like the afflicted Job, our first action must be to fall on our knees and to worship. Like Hezekiah, we must spread out our matters before the Lord. Like the holy sisters at Bethany, we must send up our prayers to Christ and let us not forget in the hurry and the excitement of feelings that no one can help like him, that he is merciful, loving, and gracious. Well, let me ask you this morning, do you believe that? No one can help like him. No one knows your hurt like Jesus knows it. No one knows death more than Jesus knows it. And not only does he knows it, he knows how to minister to his own through it all. And so today I want to give you three headings that show us how the love of Jesus Christ is greater than death. The first heading is this. We looked at it last week. Jesus Christ is the Christian's best friend in the time of need. 
That first subpoint was notice the closeness of Jesus to the people of this world. Verse 1, there was a certain man, it was Lazarus of Bethany. We talked about some of the, 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 the setting last week. Bethany's about a mile or so from Jerusalem. It was where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. It's where Jesus hung out. He spent special time there. He was close with them. They loved Jesus, and Jesus loved them. And this chapter, chapter 11 in the Gospel of John, is really a highlight in the life and ministry of Jesus. I mean, we're just a little over a week away from Jesus going to the cross. And yet this story in John 11 shows how Jesus gave his full attention to ministering to Mary and to Martha and even to Lazarus, his closest friends. He's, he's close with this family. He, he wept over Lazarus' death and the pain that it had caused Mary and Martha. In fact, in verse 36, it says, see how he loved him. There was no question that Jesus had a friend, that he had a friend in Lazarus, that he personally knew him, spent time with him, and appreciated that friendship. And then we see here in verse 3, so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And I told you last week I wanted you to see three observations about this verse. Notice first the urgent nature of their communication. It was short and to the point. It wasn't overly detailed, but it was informative and it was necessary communication. Second, they wanted to just inform Jesus but not tell him what to do. They leave it in the hands of, of the one who knows all things, who sees all things, who does all things, who has the capacity to change any situation. They just leave it in his hands. They don't ask him to come heal Lazarus. They don't even say come to Bethany. They just inform Jesus this is what's going on. And then third, please notice in this verse 3 that their plea is not based on their brother's love or even their own love as sisters for the Lord, but their plea is based on the Lord's love for Lazarus. They know the Lord loves them, and it's this love that the Father and the Son have for people that draw Mary and Martha into this closeness they felt with Christ. They know that the Lord loves their brother. They, they know that at the heart of Jesus is this warm, personal affection for people. And no doubt they had noticed that even as they evaluated the interaction that they had together. And I, I just want to remind you this morning that Jesus was close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Jesus is close with you. You're in Christ today. He calls you friend. You are closer than a brother. He knows your hurt and your pain. He knows each one of us by name. He's intimately acquainted with all your ways. He delights in the times of fellowship that you have together. He considers you as, as part of his family. He, he, he died so that you may have life in his name. And so I hope that you're keenly aware this morning that no matter what trial you're facing in your life, that no matter what circumstance you're going through, you have a friend in Jesus, that you are loved by him, and that you could appeal to that, Lord, I know that you love me. Lord, I know that I am the one that you love. You've demonstrated that to me time and time again. There's a closeness that we're seeing in this text between Jesus and Mary and Martha and even Lazarus. And I believe he has that closeness with each one of us. Not only that, but that second bullet point says, notice the purpose of trials is that God may glorify the Son. You see it there in verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified 
through it. Sometimes when we think about trials, we tend to jump real quick to the fact, well, I, I know why there's trials in my life. Trials are to make me stronger. And that's true. There's verses in the scripture that talk about where to grow and patient endurance. And God's going to complete in you what you're lacking. But remember also that the purpose of trials is even greater than just you. It's about God's glory. And in this verse, that's exactly what he says. The reason this is happening, this is for the glory of God. And this is for the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus tells us here that this illness will not lead to death. And so he's not saying that Lazarus will not die. He's simply saying that Lazarus will not stay dead. This is a, a temporary illness leading to a temporary death. But according to verse 11, Jesus will go and awaken him. He's going to wake him up. And so we're learning here that the purpose of Lazarus's illness and the purpose of every trial that you will ever experience is to point us to the glory of God. And as we're being pointed to the glory of God, according to verse 4, it's so that you may also see the Son of God, the divine Son, Jesus Christ, as being glorified through the gospel and through us learning and understanding more about Jesus. I mean, trust me, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and he loves you every single step along the way. And even though it hurts at times, and even though it's difficult, Jesus knows, and he does what is best for us. And Jesus remains close to us through it all. He's not trying to put a wedge between us. You know, sometimes we think there's a trial, there's a distance between me and God. He must be upset at me. Nothing could be further from the truth. God brings trials into your life, not to drive a wedge between you and him, but to draw you closer. This is an opportunity to lean into the sovereignty of God, to lean into the care of God, to know that this trial is not to push you away, but rather to show you how great the Father's love is for you. You got to believe that by faith today. It doesn't feel that way sometimes. Jesus is not trying to, again, push them away. He's trying to draw them closer with a love and a trust and a faith that will never waver. This leads us to our second heading Jesus Christ must be trusted even when things fall apart. You see that blank there? Jesus knows best about how and when to come to your rescue. We just sung about how he is our refuge. And I want you to know today, he knows best about how and about when to come to your rescue. Look at verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, that's Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, Jesus knows what's best, and he loves. Verse 5 says he loved Martha and his, her sister and Lazarus. That word love is the word agape. That word agape has an emphasis on doing what is best for the other person, even though it is difficult. It is difficult to let somebody go through a hard trial. It is difficult to bear under that burden with them. It was difficult for Jesus to see Martha and Mary go through the pain and the heartache of their loss. This is precisely why Jesus wept. There is no doubt that Jesus loved Martha and he loved Mary and he loved Lazarus. But sometimes love does not prevent bringing about what needs to happen for the greater purpose of glorifying God and exalting Christ. And verse 6 helps us to see that. 
when it says, So when he heard Lazarus was ill, they stayed two days longer in the place where they were. Do you see the connection there? So he heard he was ill, but they stayed two more days. On the surface, it appears that Jesus is being negligent, self-focused, or just plain out cruel. I mean, they taught us in seminary that when somebody is having a near-death experience, you always go. You drop whatever you're doing, and you go. If you know, you go. So the question is, why is Jesus, who certainly would understand that principle of how to be there for others, why does he wait two more days? I just want to make sure you know that if I find out that you're on your deathbed, I will be there for you. Right? If you call me, I'm not going to be like, hey, man, I'll be there in two days. You know, If I know that you're on your deathbed, I'm there. I'm going to show up for you. So the question is, well, why didn't Jesus do that? I mean, that's, that's, that's what pastors are trained to do, what they're supposed to do. It's what you would expect us to do. What's going on? I mean, it would be one thing if Jesus was battling demons to the brink of hell, or if he was preaching at a crusade, the, the gospel to thousands of people, or if he was even ministering to another family going through a very similar circumstance, and that's why he didn't come. But we're not told any of those things. We are simply told, the text says, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's hard for us to handle sometimes. And that's why we have to trust that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. We have to believe that he knows best. We have to believe that he is up to something good. We have to believe that him addressing the situation sooner is not necessarily what's better. That's what we want, right? We, wanna, we live in the moment. You know, we don't have time to wait for the Lord. We have to have everything right now. I mean, we live in that culture, right, where I want it right now. I don't have time to go rent a movie from the video store anymore, which are all closed down, did you know? Because I can stream it online. I don't even have time to go to Redbox anymore. I just stream the movie. I, I don't have time to wait in line at Starbucks. I buy that coffee on my app, and I walk in there and grab that cup of coffee and walk the door I go. That's the culture we live in. Just one time, I'm going to grab somebody else's coffee. I just want to do that. You know, I sit there and see these people coming in, and they just grab it. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. It's sitting up there. It's for me. The coffee's it's for me. No. But, you know, that's the culture that we live in, right? People don't like to wait. They hate waiting. But the Bible says there's value in waiting, and there's a purpose in waiting. And we're commanded to wait. Listen to Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. It's Romans 12, 12, uh, 12, 12 says rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. It, it's James 5, 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Sometimes God calls us to wait. My question for you this morning is, are you waiting on the Lord in your life? Is that a productive time of fellowship with the Lord, or are you complaining to the Lord instead of listening to the Lord and what he wants you to learn while you wait? I mean, in other words, sometimes we wait, but not in a very good mood. I wish the Lord would hurry up and fix this problem because it's still driving me crazy. Do you think he's honored with that? I mean, is that the way I talk to my wife? I hope you sure get dinner together because I sure am hungry. What's taking you so long? I, I, I wouldn't talk to my wife that way, or I wouldn't last for long, right? So the idea is while we're waiting, what are we doing? Is it a time of intimacy and growth? Because listen to me, waiting is not wasting time. 
Waiting is walking with God through the pain, through the suffering, and through the situation until God brings about the resolution as he sees fit. And in this situation, we're going to learn here that things get worse. Things will become more grievous. The sick one here dies, and Jesus still tarried. Things had to get worse at Bethany before the Lord chose to intervene. And oftentimes, God brings a man or a woman to the end of him or herself before he comes with the relief. And when circumstances look dark and bleak, our hearts are inclined to question the love of the one who appears to have abandoned us. But let me press this important truth into your heart this morning. Grasp this. Never try to interpret love by its manifestations. Love comes in many forms. Sometimes it comes as discipline. Sometimes it comes to lead us to repentance. Sometimes love comes to remove the chaff. Sometimes it brings pressure and sorrow and bereavement. But love always comes to glorify God through Jesus Christ and to help you in your faith. Warren Wearsby writes on this text, quote, when we find ourselves confronted by disease, disappointment, delay, and even death, our only encouragement is in the word of God. We live by faith, not by sight. How about J.C. Ryle again says here, quote, the highest degree of faith is to be able to wait, sit still, and not complain. You know what the Bible teaches throughout? How about Isaiah 55, 8 and 9? For my ways are not, what? Your ways, declares the Lord. Neither are my thoughts, your thoughts. For as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so we've got to know and see here that Jesus knows what he's doing. He's not unkind. He's not capricious. He's not evil. He's not negligent. He's not even just human. He's, he is human, but he's also God, right? We're talking about the divine nature. So he's not just kind of letting it slide a little bit, is what I'm trying to say. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so here, he finally says, after two more days, let us go to Judea again. It's a reminder, Jesus is coming. Jesus will address the situation. Jesus works on his timetable, and he knows what is best, and now he's ready to return to Judea again. And so we know that Jesus knows best. And we also see here your next blank that Jesus walks in the light and will accomplish what he sets out to do. Look, look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? In other words, when Jesus left Jerusalem a few months earlier at the end of John chapter 10, they were going to stone him again because he said, I and the Father are one. So now the disciples are like, whoa, 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 time out. Rabbi, teacher, are you sure you want to go back? Because last time we were in town, they tried to stone you to death. And Jesus responds to that here because the disciples, are, they're a little bit shocked. They, they're a little bit upset. Uh, they, they want to make sure that Jesus wants to go back through that kind of persecution. Are you really going to walk back into that spiritual war zone? But Jesus is fearless. And he's courageous. 
and he will walk in the light, and he will accomplish what he has set out to do. And verse 9 and 10 teach us just that in this illustration that Jesus uses. Listen to what he says, verse 9 and 10. Jesus says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. So what Jesus is saying in these two verses is this. If you're walking in the day, meaning in spiritual light, in walking according to God's will, then you are not going to stumble into sin or get off of the path that God has called you to because you're fixed on Christ. But if you're walking in the night meaning in spiritual darkness and walking according to the flesh, then you will stumble because the light of Christ is not in you. In other words, Jesus is saying that because he is walking in the light of day, he will be able to accomplish what God has called him to do in Judea, even though it is a dangerous place. And the disciples should not fear. They, they should not be afraid as long as they're following the light of the world. But if anyone walks in darkness, he should fear stumbling and failure because the light is not in him. If you want divine protection, walk in the light. If you do it on your own, you're walking in darkness. And yes, there could be deep uh, you know, consequences when you stumble. That's all he's saying. So in verses uh, 9 and 10, he's saying, look, walk with the Lord, accomplish what God calls you to, trust him with the results, it's going to be okay. And this is a similar way Jesus uses to communicate the same concept with his disciples. In fact, look at Luke 13, 33. Luke 13, 33, when Jesus tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to fulfill God's plan of redemption, he says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. It cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So at another time, they're telling him, don't go to Jerusalem, it's dangerous. He's like, no, 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 the prophet must perish in Jerusalem. I must go to Calvary. I must go to Mount Zion. It cannot happen anywhere else. It must happen there. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying the same thing in John 9, verse 4. In John 9, verse 4, in the healing of the man born blind, remember in the beginning of that chapter, he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus is saying, in effect, let's make some hay while the sun's shining. Here's a great opportunity. Let's take advantage while the conditions are good. God has lined this up for this moment at this time for us to do what he's called us to do. We've got to finish the work he started. Let's walk in obedience. Let's trust God with the results. And to me, this so often means that we've, we need to be available and looking for opportunities to even be a witness to our neighbors. You know, we, we talked about our culture's rush, rush, rush. You know, you pull in your garage and shut the door. I park in my driveway. I get out. If I see a neighbor, I'm thinking, you know what? Man, I should go talk with them right now because as soon as I go in my house, I've just missed an opportunity to talk with them. They're watering their grass right now. This, this would be the perfect time. It's not about my timetable. It's maybe about their timetable when they're a little bit more relaxed and maybe available for small talk that might lead to big talk about the gospel, and I fail at this miserably. There's lots of times I get home, and I'm like, whatever, you know, and I go in because I'm tired, and I'm hungry, and there's other times I'm like, I get out, and I'm like, I'm going to go talk to him. Now's the time, right? Here's the opportunity. In fact, it was just a couple of years ago on Halloween that uh, we decided to take the kids around to get some free candy, so we're going up and down our street because that's the night everybody's out. We don't celebrate the devil's holiday, all right? 
It's, 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 it's celebrate free candy day, all right? So we go out, and we're getting all this free candy, and we're talking to our neighbors, and our kids think it's awesome. And sure enough, we get back to the house, and we're going to go in the house, and all of my neighbors right next door are having a Halloween party. And some of them aren't really dressed appropriately, and they have some music going, and they're having an open container, drink something fun tonight type party. And so we're going inside, getting the kids inside. I'm like, honey, I'm going to go talk to the neighbors. I'm going to go hang with them. And she's like, don't you dare get something to drink. I'm like, honey, don't you? I'm just kidding. She didn't say that. But, you know, so I walk out. I walk out. I start hanging with the neighbors, and I'm just going to, you know, it's like, now's the time. It's light. I mean, it's dark here, but it's light in Christ, right? So it's like I'm out there. I'm hanging out, and sure enough, 30 seconds, 30 seconds pass. One of my neighbors walks up to me and said, what's the difference between being a Catholic and a Baptist? You're a Baptist pastor, aren't you? And I'm like, well, I used to be. Now I'm a Bible pastor. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, we changed our name a few years back from Plast Rita Baptist to Plast Rita Bible. No big deal. But they're like, what's the difference between being a Baptist and a Catholic? And I'm like, I'm so glad you asked. You know, and we had like a 30-minute conversation about the gospel right there. I mean, that's what we're talking about, like walk in the light when you know you're walking in God's word and in God's spirit and in God's way. Don't fear what's going to happen. I mean, you could still be persecuted, but I'm just saying just do the work of, that God's called you to while it's light, while you have the opportunity. That's part of what Christ is saying here. He, he's saying here that he is doing the work, and the work that God is calling him to do in this moment, in this time, is he's about to go to the cross, but he's also about to heal Lazarus, from, from or, or to raise Lazarus from the dead, right? And so we got to just trust that God's up to something good. The whole point in this is just keep being faithful, right? You, you might be stuck right now in that in-between time. It's like you've let Jesus know about your problem. He hasn't come yet and resolved the issue. And for Mary and Martha, there's two days stuck there where they're just wondering, where is he? And what we're saying is while you're waiting, be active and trusting, and while you're waiting, let your faith grow to see that God's going to be up to something good. You might be there right now. And you might be saying, it's not just two days. It's been two weeks. It's been two months. It's been two years. It's been two decades. Where is God? And I'm saying, rest assured, Jesus knows. And he cares. And he loves. And he's right there with you. He is. He's right there with you. Trust me. He knows what he's doing, and he will be glorified maybe in a brand new way as you see him in a new light and in a new grace that you would have never known had he did it on your timetable and in the way you were expecting. And that leads us to our, our last point here, really. Number three, Jesus Christ does all that he does so that you may believe. I want you to notice in verse 11 through 13 how tender are the words that Jesus uses to speak of the death of believers. Did you see this in the text? After these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. What's going on here? Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep. And these are tender words used by Christ to refer to the fact that Lazarus has now died. Sleep is used throughout the Bible as a euphemism for death. And this reference is found both in the Old and the New Testaments alike, referring so often to the death 
of believers. Just listen to all of these cross-references about this. 1 Kings 2.10, then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. 1 Kings 11.43, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. Daniel 12.2, as many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 9, 24, Jesus said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. When Jesus had died, the curtain in the temple, remember, was torn in two, and then we read this, Matthew 27, 52, the tombs were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Of the martyr Stephen, we read in Acts 7, 60, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said his last, he fell, what, asleep. In the teaching of the resurrection, the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14, it says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those others who do not have hope. But since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Again, falling asleep, it's a euphemism. It's a way of saying that these people have died. And in no way does this term, fallen asleep, refer to the doctrine of soul sleep. This doctrine is believed by Jehovah Witnesses and other cults. It would be the belief that when you die, there is no consciousness of any kind until the final resurrection. They believe that when you die, you lay dormant until the second coming of Christ. The problem with that is 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that when you are absent from the body, you are present with the Lord. That's what we call in theology personal eschatology. There's the eschaton of the ages that come up that we all debate about, but there really shouldn't be any debate for the believer on this. You are personally ushered into the presence of our Lord on the moment and the second you die. And I think that the reason that the Bible uses the euphemism and Jesus here about he's falling asleep, he's falling asleep, when he says that, I think he's speaking of Lazarus as having fallen asleep because it's such an encouraging reminder that for the believer, death is not the end, but rather, rather it's the admittance into eternal life. I mean, just a split second after you die, you will live for eternity with Jesus forever and ever. And so death is not the end. It leads to a new beginning for the believer in heaven. I mean, I've always thought that dying in my sleep would be the way to go. You just kind of fall asleep. It's nice and peaceful. You wake up in heaven. And in a sense, that's the truth. That's what death is. You fall asleep. You wake up in heaven if you're in Christ. It's as if Jesus is saying death for the believer is temporary because death doesn't stop the believer from living eternally. And so I I think that we see this is how Jesus speaks of death as a reminder for all believers. Like, oh, that's that's helpful to think about that. Sometimes I think death is the end. Sometimes I grieve with no hope. If I'm in Christ and if they're in Christ, I can have great hope. And so Jesus speaks of the death of his loved ones so tenderly. He's sensitive. He's kind. He's mindful of what they're going through. He's loving and encouraging with his words. We also see here 
your next blank, how mysterious are the ways that Jesus uses to lead people to believe? Verses 14 and 15, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. The disciples here, of course, have another misunderstanding. If he has fallen asleep, then he will recover. The disciples are thinking that maybe Lazarus has been sleeping a lot with his illness. You know, somebody's really sick, they sleep a lot. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about, and maybe he'll get better, or maybe he's going into a coma, but he's still alive, surely. But that's not what's going on, so Jesus clarifies here that Lazarus has died. Like his heart stopped beating, like he wasn't taking a breath, like he wasn't in a deep sleep, like he died, and he, he knows all things about us, right? And so Jesus knew this already. He didn't have to be told, oh, Jesus, it went from illness to death. Like Jesus knew that Lazarus at this point has died. Why? Because Jesus knows everything about you. He knows the day you were born, and he knows the day that you'll die. He, he knows when you sit down and when you rise up. He knows your thoughts from afar. He's acquainted with all your ways. He knows the, the, the word that you're about to speak before you speak it. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows the number of your days. He knew that now Lazarus has died. So he just simply tells the disciples, hey, he's, he's now dead. Now let's go. And then we see Jesus saying something that at face value, again, seems unloving here in verse 15. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Again, on the surface, this statement could appear as heartless. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, I think he simply means that the end of the story has not yet arrived. The story is not completely over. This story does not end in death. And even though Lazarus has died, there is more to learn and there's more to see. And I'm telling you, the same thing is true with your trial, even in the death of a loved one. Remember the story about Dory? Her husband died. Her four youngest kids died. And yet there was more to see. There's more to do. You can get through the pain. The sun will rise again tomorrow. God is still good, and he's still there. And this story about Lazarus is not over because death is not the end. Even though Lazarus has died, there's more to happen. God's going to somehow use the death of Lazarus, and we know the resurrection of Lazarus, to teach the disciples something they did not yet know about the Lord. They knew that Jesus was a healer. They knew he was a miracle worker. They knew that he could heal leprosy. They knew he could heal the bleeding. They knew he could heal the blind man. They knew he could heal a dead person because he had already healed a few dead people and some of the other synoptics. But they didn't know that he could heal somebody who had been dead, not for an hour or two like the other resurrections, or for a day or two, but for four days people. We're talking about four days. We're talking about rigor mortis setting in where the body becomes stiff. We're talking about decay and stench, as we'll read a little later, how he stinketh. We're talking about nobody knew that Jesus would be able to do that. I mean, this in many ways is a premier miracle that Jesus performs before the crucifixion that will forever be a testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah that he is divine, that he is the Son of God. And so Jesus made Mary and Martha wait. Jesus made the disciples wait, and sometimes Jesus will make you wait. 
How mysterious are the ways that Jesus uses to lead his people to believe? He'll get your attention, and he'll do it in a loving, gracious way, and you have to, Proverbs 3, 5 it, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. It's his glory. It's his wisdom. Let your path be shaped by him. Uh, J.C. Ryle says here, quote, the hand that was nailed to the cross is too wise and loving to smite you without needs be or to keep us waiting for relief without a cause. If you're waiting, there's a cause. And the cause here is that Jesus is glad to reveal himself in even a greater way so that we may all know and believe that he is the Son of God. Think of it this way. Had Jesus gone earlier? Had Jesus been there when Lazarus was still alive, though he was ill? A healing miracle would have been expected of him, and he likely would have performed it. But raising a dead man from the grave after four days had never been done. Again, Jesus wants to broaden the horizon and the expectation and the mystery around his ministry that would be bigger than being just predictable. Jesus is not predictable. His power goes beyond any prediction. And so we have to trust him. He knows what he's doing. One final thought. How dreadful are the doubters that stay in their despair and their gloom? Look at verse 16. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas, one of Jesus' 12 original disciples, has notoriously been known as Doubting Thomas. Right? He's definitely an Eeyore. He, he's a little bit of a Debbie Downer. Right? He, he can't really uh, get the doubts out of his mind. In fact, a little bit later in John 20, 25, after the resurrection, after the other disciples have been like, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him. He's alive. It was Thomas who said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, Thomas does eventually move from being a doubter to being a devoted believer, as he did eventually, by Christ's kindness, see the risen Christ, and he put his finger on Jesus' scars, and he placed his hand in Jesus' side, and then he famously said, my Lord and my God. But at this point in John's gospel, Thomas can only see that death awaits the Lord. It's all dim to him. He's a doubter. It's full of death. If we go there, let us go that we may die with him. It's like it's all ending in a downward spiral. I don't think he's referring here to Lazarus when he says that we may go die with him. He's referring to Jesus. He knows if they go back to Jerusalem this last time, Jesus will die, and it's likely that they'll all be killed as well. Nevertheless, we also see some spunk here from Thomas as he courageously and urgently tells the fellow disciples, let's follow Jesus to his death, even if it means a death of their own. I mean, he could have just ran the other way. He could have said, I'm out of here, and he could have just ran up back up to Galilee. But he didn't. He said, let's go with him, and we will die with him. It is true that as Christians, we struggle with dread and doubt. It is true that as Christians, we struggle with despair and gloom. 
but we can work through it all when we see the glory of Christ. And we can trust that Christ knows what he's doing, that he's doing what he's doing for his own glory and for our good. Jesus does what he does, whether it's directly or mysteriously. He does what he does in love so that we might believe him. This is William MacDonald saying, quote, God's delays are not God's denials. If our prayers are not answered immediately, perhaps he is teaching us to wait. And if we wait patiently, we will find that he will answer our prayers in a much more marvelous way than we ever anticipated. Not even his love for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus could force Christ to act ahead of the proper time. You see what we're learning here? It's all about the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the wisdom of God, and God brings about trials in our life so that we can come to know him and believe in him and follow him and trust him. And I want to ask you this morning, if you're here and you don't know Christ, you must believe in this God in order for you to be resurrected one day into heaven, into the peace with God in heaven forever, you must come to him today. You must come out of your sin. You must come out of doing things your way. You must come out of your doubt, and you must come to full repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. You must see him as above all and beyond all. So if you're doubting this morning, I'm calling you out into a life of faith to see Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Come to him today. And he will by no means cast you out. Put your faith in him and he will save you. And at the same time, the Christian goes through trials. And as Christians, if you're here today and you've wept many tears and you've been saddened by ongoing, seemingly never-ending trial, I would like to comfort you today with the comfort of Christ. Trust in him. Believe in him. Trust in him. He is the resurrection and the life trust that God's up to something good. Maybe ask yourself today, what is it that he's trying to show me? What, what part of his glory have I not seen clearly? How can I experience even a closer relationship with him because I need him now? And that's what the take-home section of our sermon is about. The closer you are to Jesus, the more you see how much he loves you. Don't you doubt for one minute that he doesn't love you. He demonstrated it on the cross. And remember, love comes in different manifestations. Some we like, some we don't like. But God does what's best for his glory and our good. In the meantime, you just be close to Jesus. You lean into him. You, you pour your heart out to him. You, you spend time in the word, on your knees, in prayer, saying, God, I got to get closer to where you are. I feel like there's a wedge. And I want to get back to that closeness where I just trust every step of my day is something that you're in control of. Secondly, the more you trust Jesus, the more comforted you will be, even when life doesn't make sense. Because it doesn't. A lot of times it doesn't. It's like bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And that wasn't ever supposed to happen to our family or to my marriage or to my child. That was never supposed to happen. It doesn't make sense, but I trust Jesus. I trust that at least where I sit, where I am, as I lean into Christ and I love him and I pour out my heart to him, he will be glorified. The Son of God will be glorified in how we're responding to it all. And then last, the more you evaluate what Jesus does in your life, the more you will see it all points to you believing in him. The whole point is that you would see him and believe in him and walk with him and be ministered to by him. And so see that there really is a love that's greater than death. 
and it's only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him today and be comforted by his love for you. Father, we bow our heads before you and just pray that you would help these truths sink in. Lord, we've seen uh, this text a lot of us for a lot of years, and every time we see it, Lord, there may be new little nuggets of truth that you open our eyes to by your spirit through your word, and I pray that even today, God, that we would see the wisdom of Christ and that we would be willing to trust Christ and to be patient with his timetable and the way he rescues us as our refuge. For some of us, it may be heaven. There's no rescue on this side of glory. It's going to be going to heaven. For others, it may be that you sustain us day by day. For others, it may be instant healing, immediate removal of the trial. I don't know, Lord, but I just know through it all, we're going to trust you, and we're going to walk with you, and we're going to hold close to the hand that will never let us go and the love that never stops loving as we think and meditate on how we are him whom you love. Would you do a special work of grace in each heart today? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.